Well, good evening. Welcome back. We're excited to have everybody here tonight and everyone joining us on Facebook. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, We're going to be continuing our series tonight, Arguing Semantics, Words Matter. But before we do that, I wanted to give a couple quick announcements. This weekend will be the Cleburne Pregnancy Center Walk for Life. We've been advertising it a little bit, not as much as I would have liked. We didn't get the information on it as quickly as I had planned, but that will be this weekend. If you've signed up for it, the link is online. You can uh, hit me up after service. I'd love to get you connected if you'd like to. They are trying to raise, I believe it's $90,000, and they've raised about $50,000 already, so that's awesome. Um, you, can, you can join on there. If you're not able to walk on Saturday, um, you can still contribute. And uh, they'll, they'll still raise funds for that. They reach out to the people for you, which is really, really great. Uh, that will start at 9 o'clock on Saturday. Registration is at 8. So I will be there. I'd love to see you out there as well. Uh, let me know if you're going to be, and we'll plan to meet up. The other thing is going to be the senior luncheon. The, the monthly senior luncheon is tomorrow, starting at 11 o'clock. Miss Betty said, if you want to socialize, please be there before 11, so that they have plenty of time to get started. It is a potluck. Church will be providing the meat. Everyone else will be providing the sides. So feel free to come. If you're going to be there, please bring a side to enjoy with everybody else. Um, uh, right in the gym, if I didn't mention that. So, Well, before we jump in, I just want to, with a show of hands, does anybody have a prayer request? Anything going on in your life that you'd just like us to join in prayer? Uh, so we'll just lift those up in prayer as we begin, and uh, asking God to touch those needs as well as preparing us for the word tonight. So if you'll bow your heads with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to come together to learn about you from your word, to worship you, and uh, just, Father, I pray that you would open us up to hear your word and to receive it. I pray that as I share the word tonight that you would help me not to get in my own way, but you would help me to present your word the way that you intended it to be presented. We pray all these things, and we lift up all the needs that, uh, that have been lifted up tonight. I pray that you would just meet every single person in this room where they are. You would help them to know that you're not a distant, far-off God, but you're right there in the midst of their need, right there grieving with them. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we have been doing a four-part series. Tonight is the finale. It is bittersweet. I'm very, very uh, honored to have had the opportunity to share with you, share my heart. And I'm sad that it's coming to an end, but I think this is going to be a really great way to conclude it. I'm excited about that. So, last couple weeks, we've been talking about some different words that I feel like maybe there's been some misunderstanding in culture and society. We've been redefining those a little bit from a scriptural lens. We started out with justice. We said that justice is the consequence of living outside of God's goodness. Uh, We said the next week that we talked about grace versus mercy, mercy versus grace. We said that mercy is us receiving what we don't deserve I'm sorry, not receiving what we do deserve, and grace is receiving what we don't deserve. Those are two parts of, of uh, two sides of the same coin. Last week, we talked about judgment versus conviction. Judgment being a, uh, something that we do whenever we feel that there's an offense from someone else, and really that we don't have the right to judge one another because our debt has been paid. That debt that, was, that really belonged to God anyway, he paid it all off. Conviction being a work of the Holy Spirit in which he utilizes us sometimes to call out uh, other people, raise them up to a higher standard. So those are kind of the, a little synopsis of what we've talked about. Tonight, though, we're going to be talking about brokenness. And I hope to redefine some things. I hope to reframe some of this. Uh, we had a show of hands earlier of needs. So I, I think it's safe to say that everybody in this room understands brokenness. 
We've all been there before. We all know what it feels like to be shattered, to be broken into pieces, to not have any hope, to not know where to go. I would think it's safe to say that every single one of us has tasted that before. And tonight, as we talk about brokenness, I hope that we can reframe it a little bit. That's actually my intention, is not to redefine the word necessarily, but to reframe our understanding of brokenness and hopefully be able to step into a place of peace and healing that maybe you've never walked into before. So tonight, we are going to begin back where we started in Genesis chapter 3. I did not intend to stay in Genesis chapter 3 each time that we came together, um, but I have, and it's been pretty cool. I I didn't set out with necessarily an agenda for this series. I knew what I wanted to talk about, but I kind of let the Lord guide me each time that I put together one of these installments, if you will. And each time we came back to Genesis 3, and sometimes starting at the beginning really helps us to unpack what we're talking about. But I feel like it would be important to give a little bit of a summary of chapters 1 and chapters 2 of Genesis in case maybe you've never heard those before, or maybe it's just been a while. We need to refresh the memory. So I'm going to give us an exhaustive summary of chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis to help us set the tone. In the beginning, God created something out of nothing, and it was good. End of summary, and we can move on. That's pretty much all you need to know about the first two chapters of Genesis. There are a lot of good things in there. We're not going to talk about them tonight, but that sets the stage. God created something. That something was the world that we live in. Most specifically, he created mankind, Adam and Eve. We know that, and now we start in Genesis chapter 3, And uh, we see that God created man and woman. He gave them an instruction. He put them in the garden and he said, you have everything that you need, everything that you could possibly imagine, every fruit that you could want. But there were two trees in the middle of the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I know I've talked about this before almost every week. You're probably getting tired of hearing it. But as Red Skelton used to say, if you've heard it before, please keep it to yourself because I'm dying to hear it again. So, uh, Two trees in the garden, and the one they ate from, we know that, and somehow as they ate from the tree of life, it actually prolonged their life. And we have no reason to believe that they wouldn't have been prolonged forever uh, as long as they continued eating the tree of life. That's kind of what the context seems to imply. But the second tree was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we talked a little bit about that, unpacking it. We're going to unpack it a little bit more tonight. That was the tree that God said, you can eat of any of the trees You cannot eat from that tree. If you do, you will die. So, beginning in chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, we're just going to jump in here. Now, the serpent was more cunning than any animal of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God really said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Now, before we go any further, it's important that we identify something. The serpent is described as being crafty. Some translations say shrewd or cunning. The idea is that this this particular creature is the most deceptive of any creature in the garden. Now, in Jewish narrative, Hebrew narrative, it's important to stop and and notice that very rarely do we describe characters. Throughout the Torah, throughout the Old Testament, there's a lot of description of events, but very rarely is the character described. And there's a reason for that. If, in Jewish narrative, if a character is described, they want you to notice something about them. They're not just doing it. A lot of times in in English stories, we describe things way too much. We put in way too much information. Hebrew narrative did not do that. They were very specific uh, and strategic with the words that they used. So, 
if the author, who we believe is Moses, is writing that the serpent was crafty, very important. Let's put a pin in that. We'll kind of jump back in. Um, So it could be shrewd, could be cunning, could be crafty, but it's deceptive is the most important thing. Now, being shrewd, being cunning, is a little bit of an ambiguous term, okay? Because in Scripture, it's, it's a virtue to seek wisdom. It's a virtue to seek uh, shrewdness. In fact, in the New Testament, Jesus actually says to be shrewd as snakes, but innocent as doves. So there's actually a call to be this uh, throughout Scripture. But we also see in Scripture that the mishandling of wisdom, especially when it's apart from God, actually leads to destruction. And right here, we can certainly see that the serpent is mishandling wisdom because he's instructing the woman to do something that is against the will of God. Now, the woman said to the serpent, picking up in verse 2, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God has said, you shall not eat or touch it or you will die. Picking up in verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you certainly will not die for God knows that on the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will become like God knowing good and evil. Now, remember to this point, all they've ever known is good. Imagine a child. My son, I bring him up quite a bit. Uh, He's a big part of my life right now. He is 17 months old, and all he knows is that the world is a good place. All he knows is that people are safe, that people can be trusted. He is one of the friendliest little guys you will ever meet. He will wave at anybody. He'll blow kisses at anybody because he has never experienced what you and I know that the world is not always a friendly place. The world is not always a trustworthy place and that not everybody that you come in contact with has your best interest in mind. But for him, all he knows is good. If he does know something is bad, it's because me or my wife have told him. But from his perspective, everything is good. That is a little bit what the world of Adam and Eve would have been like. They know nothing else other than what God has instructed them. And we know from our first lesson that good is defined not because God said, I want that to be good, I want that to be good, or that he was simply identifying good because some higher standard, higher than him, had identified it. We know that good is defined by what reflects the character and the nature of God. Namely, in the, in the creation story, we see things that produce life. We see things that are fruitful. And we see things that have life-giving relationships. These are the things that are good. Um, but here, the serpent is beginning to challenge that mindset, what they had before. He's challenging that God has really instructed them the right way. Now, the world in their minds, it was good, but it wasn't that evil didn't exist. Clearly, there's a serpent who's deceptive. There's a serpent who's crafty. There's a serpent who is not reflecting the will of God because his instructions are contrary to the will of God. Therefore, evil must have existed before we would quote the fall of man. Adam and Eve were simply oblivious to it. They didn't know that it existed. But here, they're coming face to face for the first time. Now, the serpent challenges God's goodness, and he causes Eve to question the trustworthiness of God. And it's interesting to me because if you ask most people, what is the original sin, most would say, disobedience, right? God said, don't do something. They did something. Now, they suffer the consequence. But 
in the context, I would argue that the original sin actually took place in verse 5. Verse 6 is where we see the partaking of the fruit. That it actually took place in verse 5 when Eve begins to question the trustworthiness of God. Now, I believe that because throughout Scripture, sin is defined as a content of the heart, not an action of the hand. Sin is the motivation behind the thing that we do rather than the actual thing that we face. Here, Eve's rejection of her trust in God leads her to the action of eating the fruit. When we spoke of goodness, we spoke of God, reflecting God's character. One of the key characteristics of the Godhead, the, the Trinity, is eternal trust. Shared by each of the members, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit... They had complete confidence in one another. Eve's rejection of trust consequently led her to stop reflecting the character of God and brought her to a place where she was no longer good because she was no longer reflecting the character of God. The action of eating the fruit was no more than a physical manifestation of what was happening on the inside. Now in verse 6, it says that she saw that the fruit was good for making one wise. And her interaction with the serpent led her to believe that he was telling the truth. After all, he's the first one to challenge that maybe God isn't trustworthy. Well, where did he get that information from? Surely he has some wisdom that's apart from God. And if he has a a wisdom that's apart from God, if he's telling me where the source is, then that must be valid. Now here, for the first time, we see that God is actually being uh, considered to be the deceiver. Eve is being led to believe that he's been lying to his creation about consequences when in reality he is hiding some great treasure from her. So she eats the fruit, then she leads her husband to do the same. Now jumping into verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were naked, And they knew that, I'm sorry, the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves waist coverings. Now I find it interesting that the first thing that they notice when their eyes are opened is that they're naked. This is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They knew good, that's all they knew. They knew that it was a reflection of God's character. But now they know evil and the first thing that they notice is that they're naked. Is that strange to anybody but me. Again, Hebrew narrative, if there's a character description, it's important that we take a look. Now, I I meant to put this in a a slide. It would have been a really good presentation. Didn't happen. So we'll uh, we'll just have to work with it. Um, The word crafty, which we saw at the very beginning, crafty, shrewd, is the Hebrew word aram. Aram. And naked is the Hebrew word arum. Very close, very similar. If you see them together, you'll see that they actually are spelt very close together. They share a lot of similarities. Uh, in Hebrew script, uh, there are only consonants in the words. The, the vowel sounds were, only came through oral tradition as they would speak it. Later on, they would put vowel pointings, which were dots alongside the consonants. And that would change some of the structure and the meaning of the words. But if you just saw the writing in the original language when Moses penned it, they would have looked very, very similar. Now, what I want to be careful of here is there is a pitfall when studying uh, biblical languages that... If two words share the same root, that they're essentially the same word. That's not true. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I am saying is that I believe 
both strategically and by the guiding of the Holy Spirit, I believe that Moses used these words in such a way to draw a similarity and a connection. Because what's pointed out in this serpent, something that the author wanted us to see, was the serpent's craftiness. Now, he wants us to see something about Adam and Eve, and it's their nakedness, which I believe they were. But those two words being so similar, used in a very similar context, seems to imply a similarity. In discovering evil, they noticed themselves. They noticed with their new wisdom that they actually looked more like the serpent than they looked like God. As Gordon Wenham says, they sought to be shrewd, but found themselves nude. They realized that their goodness was not found in themselves, but restricted to the, to their, as they reflected God himself. Now that they were no longer reflecting him, they realized that there was no good in them. The evil actually resided in their hearts. You see, God had covered them in grace, overshadowing their nakedness, overshadowing something inside of them that was there the whole time, but they were unable to see it before. See, this wasn't the first time that they were naked. In fact, we saw in chapter 2, verses 25, that they were also naked. They were never clothed. That was never something that they needed to do. It identifies them as being naked, but it follows up in chapter 2, verse 25, with the Hebrew word bash, which bash is ashamed. But specifically, being ashamed of something that you wish to hide from those around you. So there's a relational dynamic. They were ashamed of what was in, they were not ashamed at that point because they didn't know that it was a problem. They had nothing to be ashamed of. Now their eyes are open. They have the knowledge of good and evil. They look down, they see that they're naked and they are ashamed to the point that they feel the need to cover themselves, to hide themselves from each other and from God. You see, Adam was not perfect. He was not a healthy man who was intrinsically good, who made a bad choice and then became progressively worse. He was an imperfect, broken creation from the start, unable to please God because he was worthless on his own. But God picked him up, breathed life into him, gave him the fruit of everlasting life, and empowered him to reflect God's good nature with one resounding condition that Adam must simply trust him. But instead, man chose wisdom apart from God in an attempt to be like God, but being like God, knowing good from evil, only separated them from God. You see, God is holy. God is perfect. God is set apart. He is the highest quality of being. He is that only standard of good. And that means that in contrast to him, everything else must not possess that quality. If God is set apart, if God is holy, then we can't be. Adam was not a perfect creation unwilling to please God. He was an incomplete creation unable to please God. Because God requires perfection. God requires holiness. And we cannot give God what he requires because only God can produce what God requires. In other words, God requires himself. And this is why Jesus could be the only substitute, the only suitable sacrifice Because he is everything that Adam was, plus everything that Adam wasn't divinely perfect. It wasn't what Adam did that was the problem, it was who Adam was. Now, some might have a problem 
with that idea because it appears to paint God as an imperfect, inadequate creator, but it's actually just the opposite. Imperfect only means incomplete, not lacking because of a design flaw, but rather left wanting, yearning for a missing piece, that piece being the presence of the creator himself. Imagine an instrument. Instruments are created for a purpose. They might look nice on the outside. They might serve a purpose of sitting on a shelf and everybody saying, wow, what a really great instrument. But until somebody comes along and breathes uh, air through them, they cannot fulfill the fullness of their purpose. If the instrument could produce sound on its own, it would have no need for the musician. Now, another way of, uh, of explaining that, maybe a little bit more practically, you know, you take a a glass vase like this. And you might look at something like this. When we talk about being broken, we talk about something that is uh, not whole. Maybe it was whole, had a purpose, but then it just suddenly becomes broken. Not like that, because that apparently is a very well-manufactured vase. Um, But, and you get the idea. If that were to break and shatter into pieces, I've got a few of them breaking off. If you need a vase, Walmart has them for $5. I highly recommend that one because that one's not going to break. But if it did, shattering into a million pieces, you get the idea. That's what we think of brokenness. Maybe that's a whole other sermon in its own. Maybe I should go a different direction. But you get the idea. If it was shattered into a million pieces, when we think of brokenness, that's what we think of. Something that was created for a purpose. Somebody, somewhere along the line, makes it shatter and it's broken, unable to be used anymore. But I want to reframe that a little bit. Because just like the instrument that was created for a purpose, I guess I could have used that vase. But this vase has an intrinsic issue with it. Because let's imagine that that was broken and I put it back together and there's a hole in it. We don't have to do that. There's already a hole in this one missing something. Because when the person who made this created this vase, he had something in mind. And it wasn't that it would remain empty. It was that it would be filled and used for a purpose that something would be in it. You see, on its own, without something inside of it, This is essentially broken, not fulfilling its ultimate purpose. Without water in the jar or air through the instrument, these objects are no more than beautifully crafted vessels, fearfully and wonderfully made because they lack a single component intrinsically placed in their DNA, the creator. So here we are, broken, missing a vital component. Adam and Eve were created to need their creator. Adam and Eve were were created not to be able to produce goodness from themselves, but to be a vessel through which the only good one could please the standard that he had set. But many of us do become shattered, like this pot or what it should have done, either because of what's missing in us or what's missing in others. Maybe you've experienced the death of a loved one, the result of us no longer having the fruit of the tree of life. We die. Maybe you've suffered abuse, the result of someone no longer reflecting the goodness of God. Maybe you've struggled with addiction, the result of constantly, endlessly searching for something to fill the void that only God can fill. 
whatever it is, the brokenness didn't start with the loss. It didn't start with the abuse. It didn't start with the addiction. It started when we as a species refused to trust God. But here we are, broken. Whether it be because we're missing something or because we've become shattered because we're missing something. What do we do with our brokenness? We've acknowledged that we're broken, and even when those of us who have received Christ and have a relationship with our designer, we still experience brokenness. But what do we do? How do we we heal? Where do we go from here? When Adam and Eve noticed that they were naked, they immediately hid themselves and attempted to cover themselves. Like we talked about, this is the natural response. When we hide... We hide and we work to cover ourselves, hoping that God will accept us on the merit of our works, praying that he won't see us for what's really there. But moving in verse 8, we see that that's not really how it's going to happen. Now they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to man and he said, where are you? He said, I, Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. Note how he described his reasoning for hiding. So I hid myself. And the Lord said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? So God discovers them hiding themselves, working to cover their craftiness Now, based on the charge given, we expect to see a wrathful, angry, writhing God. Because after all, the charge was, if you do what I tell you not to do, you're going to die. And the original readers of this story would have certainly understood it that way. Because their concept of God was not like ours. Not of a loving, merciful God, like we talked about a couple weeks ago. But of a God who says, if you don't do what I say, it's done. It's over. They would have been very shocked, as we should be, of what actually happens. Instead, he asks them two simple questions. Where are you? He pursues Adam. And how did you know that you were naked? Notice that he wasn't surprised by the fact that they were naked. He knew. He made them that way. It's a part of his design. But there was only one way that they could have known if they had sought wisdom apart from him, if they had chosen not to trust him. Rather than an angry God, we find a grieving father. One who's heartbroken by his son's rejection of him, asking for his inheritance. A father who instead of destroying his son for his disobedience, begins to set a plan in motion that would eventually lead to his son coming home. Instead of writhing in anger, he begins to plan his homecoming party. But there's a problem. The son doesn't trust him anymore. And he must go and discover the world for himself apart from his father's provision. And that's where we find ourselves. That's where the story picks up for us in the midst of brokenness, a broken world, broken people. Again, if you suffer brokenness, it's because of something missing in you or something missing in other people. But as a, as, a, as a human race, we are missing something fundamental, something that is placed in our DNA. Now, if we fast forward through the pages of Scripture, we meet a man named David. David was a mighty man of God who, even though he had his shortcomings like we talked about, 
He was a worshiper in the purest form. As we study, study Scripture, we meet him as a foreshadowing of Christ. And in 2 Samuel 6, David has become king of Israel. He's recaptured the city of Jerusalem from a tribe called the Jebusites. He's conquered the Philistines. And now he desires to bring the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, back into the city. In doing so, he doesn't just, he doesn't just bring the Ark back, but he leads the procession in a particular way. Picking up in verse 14, it says, And David was dancing before the Lord with all his strength, and David was wearing a linen ephod. Now, some uh, translations say priestly robes. The idea here is that he was wearing something that was not typical for a king to wear. And if you look at the, uh, the imagery of this ephod, some scholars would say he was fully clothed, but... Most likely, if he was just wearing the ephod, again, the Hebrew writer feels the need to highlight that. And we'll see in the context that I believe he was only wearing part of it. And he had a a, a portion of undress about him. Um, And his dancing, he's dancing before the the ark, leading it in. He was wearing the, the linen ephod, some level of undress before the Lord. Now picking up in verse 20. His wife had seen him, his wife Michael, had seen him dancing, and she was not happy about this at all. And this is the context that I was speaking of, helps me to know that he was, in fact, some level of undress. But when David returned to his own house, Michael, the daughter of Saul, so Saul who David had, uh, had become king afterwards, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel dignified himself today. There's sarcasm in her tone. For he exposed himself today in the sight of the servants. Female slaves, as one of the rabble, shamelessly exposes himself. But David said to Michael, I was before the Lord who preferred me to your father and to all his house to appoint me as ruler of the people of the Lord over Israel. So I will celebrate before the Lord and I might demean myself even more than this and be more lowly esteemed in my own Now, his wife was angry with him because he had been undignified. Some translations say, I will worship God even more undignified than this. Now, it's important, not only was he in some level of undress, but I mentioned he was not wearing what was becoming of a king. He was wearing the linen ephod, the priestly garments. He had his own status. Now, if you know anything about David, he had earned his place in the kingdom. He had killed tens of thousands of the enemy. The people respected him as their leader. He had earned their place. And even whenever we talked about David's sin uh, uh, last week, he was the king. He probably could have gotten away. Nobody would have batted an eye with whatever he wanted to do because he was the king. He had earned his place. But here David is saying, I'm choosing not to hide behind the things that I've worked for. I'm choosing not to hide behind my reputation. I'm choosing not to hide behind what I have done for myself. And I'm choosing to bear myself to my God the way he created me. I'm choosing to be transparent before God in the way that he created me. We can't work through our brokenness until we're transparent. Bearing ourselves before God and others. But we don't want to do that. It's uncomfortable. What if others see who I really am? What if God sees who I really am? 
C.S. Lewis once said, and I, I don't do that on purpose, I promise. It's just I've read a lot of his stuff, and it's the most applicable that I found. So C.S. Lewis once said, It's always shocking to meet life where we thought we were alone. Look out, we cry. It's alive. And therefore, this is the very point at which so many draw back. I would have done so myself if I could and proceeded no further with Christianity. An impersonal God, well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness inside our own heads, better still. A formless life force surging through us, a vast power which we can tap best of all. But God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at an infinite speed, the hunter, king, husband, that is quite another matter. There comes a moment when the children who have been playing at burglars hush suddenly. Was that a real footstep in the hall? There comes a moment when people who have been dabbling in religion, man's search for God, suddenly draw back. Supposing we really found him. We never meant it to come to that. We're still supposing he's found us. Here, he, he likens our search from God like playing hide-and-seek when we're kids. And Do you ever remember when you were younger and you might act like there's somebody, some, somebody breaking into your house, but then suddenly you hear a, a real footstep and suddenly the game's not so much fun anymore because you didn't actually anticipate finding something for real. He's saying that's what it's like whenever we go through the motions of religion, whenever we aren't transparent with God and with ourselves and we're going to church, we're doing things, people say, hey, how's it going? How's life going? Oh, it's fine. When on, on the inside we're broken and we're missing something and we know that. He's saying we don't really anticipate to find God. Because what if he really saw us? Are we really ready for that? Are we really ready for God to see us naked and vulnerable? I always find it interesting that Adam and Eve never repented for their actions. They never confess that the issue was that they chose not to trust God. And perhaps they never realized that was actually what it was. Being um, Hiding our brokenness generally causes us to be blind from what could actually save us. When our lives fall to pieces, we become dismayed, distraught, and even angry. Sometimes angry with ourselves, sometimes angry with God. When we lose a loved one, it's easy to blame God for taking them away. When we've been abused, it's often God, we often blame God for allowing us to walk through all that we've been through. It's easy to become entitled God, this isn't what I deserve. I should have never had to go through that grief, through the pain of losing my child, a job, a sense of well-being. It's not fair. That's how I felt when my dad died from cancer 10 years ago. For several years, I, I felt as though I couldn't heal, as though the void that was there was far too large for anything else to fill. And I became angry with God because my dad wasn't at my wedding. Because my dad will never get to hold my children. Because I never get to call my dad and ask him the advice that a man should be able to ask his dad. I never had that. And I became angry with God because he had taken something very, very important to me. I never thought that I could heal. But it wasn't until I realized that my dad was nothing more than a reflection of my father. 
In fact, all the good that I saw in him was nothing more than a reflection of the character of God. Human relationships are intended to be precursors to the eternal relationship that we find in God. And we, sh- we should absolutely enjoy those that are in our lives. We should absolutely enjoy our loved ones, but their absence doesn't have to bring emptiness that nothing can fill. They were simply holding the place for us to be filled by the one who created the whole in the first place. The presence of brokenness in our life is a sign of an eternal substance waiting to make us whole. No matter how much we hurt, no matter how unfair life may seem, no matter how broken and incomplete we feel, the day we step foot in heaven, we will have complete peace. Not simply because we see our lost loved ones again, while I believe we will, but because we'll realize in that moment that they were simply holding the place for the one who makes us complete, the one who can fill that void. All along, it was really the creator that they were pointing to. When Jesus walked to the cross, his body was broken. He was crushed by shame. Most scholars would agree that crucifixion was the most excruciating, the most demeaning, the most shame-filled execution that mankind has ever came up with. The Romans would use this for their most hated criminals, their most hated traitors. It was a way of showing the world, look what we've done to the one who leads you. It was demeaning. It was intended, designed to be excruciatingly painful, designed to take days for it to come to an end. You could say... That Jesus endured humanity's worst to bring us heaven's best. But how did he do it? We know that he was in excruciating pain. There's no way he couldn't have been. We know that there were moments that he struggled to push forward. But he did it. We see a glimpse of... uh, what was going through his mind in Hebrews 12, verses 2. Looking only at Jesus, the originator and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy set before us allows us to endure brokenness. Now, it's important to note that the joy didn't take the pain away. It didn't necessarily make his suffering easier. But he kept in mind the prize that lie at the end. If you've lost a loved one, you won't see them again on this side of heaven. If you feel like you've never stepped into the career that you wanted to, and, but you've never seen it. If you're struggling with a relationship that keeps getting worse and worse, You may never see better days, though I pray you do. But the joy that awaits us will make it all worth it. There's a second definition to brokenness. One where we give up hope. One where we despair. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, then you have hope. Hope of an eternity with your creator. In that moment, everything will be set Right, it's that hope, the joy that we find in it, 
that leads us to endure whatever it is that we face. Now tonight, my hope is that we can reframe brokenness. From the start, we're all broken in a sense because we're missing something that only God could fill. Intentionally, he designed us that way. I talked about my pain of walking through losing my my dad and it has been hard in those 10 years that I talked about. It's pretty much taken me that entire time and there have been very, very hard seasons of my life. And even still, I'm not going to stand up here and say that it's easier or that, well, I'm not going to stand up here and say that it's, I've recovered from it because I won't. But I can say it's easier because of this very fact. I've learned the value in seeing that it was God that I was looking for all along and not an earthly person that I've been missing. And a practical application of that, I kind of mentioned last week, I was going to be talking about how to minister out of brokenness. I didn't go that route quite the same, but I do want to add this component. For me, not having my dad in my life was very helpful for me because as I dug into the prodigal son's story, I realized that my search for understanding, missing those components of having a father, helped me to understand what that father must have been feeling for his son. That's not something that I could have done at the beginning of my process of grief. That's not something that I could have done on my own. But as I've learned to find sufficiency in Christ, as I've learned to find that he is the only thing that can fill that void because he's the only thing that ever fit, it changes me. And I can see through a lens and helps me to view scripture in a way that could help other people. We need to reframe our brokenness. The shattering that we felt started because we've been missing something and we've searched for it in all the wrong places. doesn't mean we shouldn't have fulfilling relationships. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't enjoy all that this world has to offer within the goodness of God. But it does mean that ultimately we will only ever find satisfaction in Him. Second invitation that I want to give is that we would open ourselves to our Heavenly Father. It's easy for us to hide ourselves from Him. To act as though somehow he doesn't know the broken places in us, but he can't heal us unless he does. We have to lean into the pain. We have to lean into the area where we struggle. And lastly this, that we would find joy that allows us to endure. Now something that I want to point out, it says that Jesus endured the the cross Because of the joy set before him. Do you know what that joy was? It was you. It was you. It was me. You were his motivation to push through. You were his motivation to keep going when the pain was excruciating. You were his motivation to push through. You were the prize that he was after. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about yourself being his Prize to face the most challenging thing that a person could face, you were what was on his mind. And if that doesn't motivate you to find joy in that, to walk through your storm, then I, I, I'm, I'm scared to say that nothing will. You are so valuable to him that he was willing to go through hell on earth so that he could spend eternity with you. That joy helps us to find sufficiency. That joy helps us to be made whole.
Now, you might be here today and you might say, this is all good, but, you know, I still feel broken. And I was hoping that maybe you'd give me something that would take the brokenness away. It's not going to happen. Not until we're outside of this world where we're complete because of our relationship with our Father and there's no one left to hurt us. But, while this vase being full doesn't make it incapable of breaking, if I were to drop it, if it were to break, it might still shatter, but what's on the inside would impact those around it. If we have joy, if we have the right things inside of us, then even our brokenness will minister to the people around us because they'll see that we're not just an empty vessel shattered into pieces, but we're a vessel that was containing what we were supposed to be containing all along. As we close in prayer tonight, I would just ask you to open up your heart to our Heavenly Father. Allow Him to search it and say, God, where's the, where's the brokenness that needs to be reframed? How can you help me to take what I'm going through to minister to other people? How can you help me to make some purpose out of the hurt that I've experienced? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you speak to us in such a deep, powerful, moving way. I pray that you would challenge us tonight, that you would, you would search our hearts. Where's the brokenness? Where are the things that only you can fix? I pray that you would help us to stop looking to fill our void with something that is never going to do it. I pray that you would walk us through our grief and you would help us as we face challenges, relational challenges. In no way do I intend to downplay any of that. It hurts and it's painful, but Father, I know that you are capable of reframing that pain and you are capable of helping us to do something with it that only you can do. And I help pray that you would open us up to receive the fullness of who you are and the healing that you offer. I pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I am tremendously honored that you gave me four weeks to come up here and share with you. Like I said, tonight is bittersweet. I, I very much so enjoyed concluding with this sermon, but uh, it's also bitter because I've enjoyed sharing my heart with you for the past four weeks. Um, hope to do it again. Until then, Pastor Mike will be back next week. We look forward to seeing you for Mission Sunday. Please come ready to pledge uh, a monetary uh, investment into the mission field. We'll give opportunity for that. We look forward to, uh, to seeing you on Sunday. Thank you all so much.